Hi there, this is Paul, and uh, normally you'd be tuning in to Redeemer on Sunday morning, and I just want to thank you for listening to the podcast regularly. I'm actually doing this because on Sunday we had an audio problem, and uh, the sermon's going to cut out, and so what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to join you about 26 minutes from now, and uh, going to kind of conclude the sermon, um, but I'm not going to uh, preach uh, to nobody here in... Uh, KW Redeemer headquarters, also known as my office in the basement. So we're going to go to Sunday morning service, and then uh, we're going to pick it up, and then I'm going to kind of walk you through the end of the of the text, end of the sermon, encouraging the gospel, and um, we'll do that together kind of podcast style. So uh, be blessed. Thanks for listening to the services at uh, KW Redeemer. I hope you find them encouraging. And I will see you in about 26 minutes. So our family vehicle is a... Um, Honda CRV. It's a very good car for uh, you know, good on gas. It's good on. Uh, it's reliable. It's utterly responsible and it's utterly boring. At the same time, because it's a mid-sized SUV. Because all mid-sized SUVs are boring. And the reason all mid-sized SUVs are boring is because they are the creation from the fallen mind of a depraved humanity. And so they all end up looking like melting scoops of ice cream. I will fight you on this. It's true. But anyways, the reason I have this particular brand of mid-size SUV is because I, ha- I had another one that was equally boring and equally, you know, depraved. And I went to go get an oil change about two years ago, and the technician came out and he said, uh, Sir, would you please put these on? And he handed me eyewear. And he said, would you follow me? Now, I don't know if you know much about cars. But if you go in for a simple oil change and they hand you protective eyewear, you're not being invited to go paintballing. So I go and follow him. And my car is up on the hoist. It's waxed and shiny and polished because I like clean cars. It's a thing I've got. So my car's up there nice and clean and shiny. And I walk in. And he stands underneath it. He takes a screwdriver and he starts poking holes through, through the subframe. It was defective and it was corroded so badly. It was just poking, poking holes in it. And he says, this is a serious, serious safety hazard. You need to either replace the subframe or you need to get a new, a new vehicle because this is, a, this is really concerning. And um, so long story short is we got rid of that and got the vehicle that, that we're in now. And it was a wild moment because you've got this polished appearance with no structural integrity. Our text this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes is a book where it's really like a philosophical essay, where through 12 chapters, Solomon puts all of our ideas about life, all of our ideas about identity and purpose and meaning up on a hoist. And he says, you know, these are some pretty shiny ideas you have. And he takes a philosophical screwdriver, and for 12 chapters, he just starts poking holes in it. So between now and Christmas, we're going to work our way through this book. And before you say, thanks for the heads up, that sounds very depressing. I'll show up at Advent because I like sermons that sound like a Norman Rockwell painting. Hold on a second. This book, this book in and of itself does not give tremendously good news. This book in and of itself is a philosophical treatise that is intentionally driving us to look for good news. And so we understand it like we understand all scripture through a cross-shaped lens, through the grace of the cross, so that we can see the goodness of God for us through Christ in this. And so now we turn 
to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Meaningless. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth, it remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, to where they flow again, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been will always be, and what has been done will always be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which it can be said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the later things. And yet to be among those who come after, I, the preacher, have been the king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, and all is striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all those who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom, and to know madness, and to know folly. And I perceive that this is also but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow this is god's word okay wow it's pretty early in the morning huh let's deep dive into philosophy well let's do it because i promise you though you can read the 12 chapters of solomon and not find good news all 12 chapters are pointing us to tremendously good news here we go in verse one first of all solomon refers to himself as a preacher your translation might say teacher Uh, In 1530s, when William Tyndale translated the Bible first into English, that's how it was translated. But in a classical sense, teaching is not how you often think of teaching now. Um, Because often when we think of teaching and preaching, I'm up here preaching and teaching, but we're not having a conversation. I talk for 25 to 30 minutes if I, you know... You know, if I'm good, I'm less than 30 minutes. I'm up here talking, and then, you, and then we all kind of go home. You might have discussions later, but we're not having a discourse right now. You go to a university, and you sit in a lecture, and you receive a lecture, and you go, and that's how we think of teaching. But when Solomon calls himself the teacher or the preacher, the Hebrew word uh, for this is actually koheleth. And the koheleth in the Hebrew actually could also be translated a great collector of sentences who understands where the meaning is going. It could also be translated, the great inquirer, the deep investigator, one who realizes an idea in completeness. So he says, I'm the Choheleth. In other words, class, uh, welcome to Ecclesiastes. I'll be your philosophy teacher. And over the next 12 weeks, we're going to be discussing the meaning of life. 
And then the way he does it is he doesn't give you any answers for the meaning of life for 12 chapters. He keeps asking provoking question after provoking question after provoking question. Because in a classical sense, teaching is not just information transfer. You're trying to draw ideas out of the student so that when those ideas come and they are naive ideas, hence their students, you can take the naivety of those ideas and have a discourse to help form maturity. The idea is to move a student from naivety to maturity. Good teachers still do this, right? Bad teachers will say things like, everything you need for life is already in you. Is it though? They've been pooping themselves for the first five years and then they kind of figured out how to talk and now they're here in class with you and you're telling them that they need everything they have is already need them? I don't think so. Right? And so, the, so good teachers understand this. I've got to draw out of the student so we can wrestle out these ideas about how we can engage in this thing called life. So, Paul, uh, sorry, so Solomon introduces him, himself uh, as that. He says, we're going to explore the meaning of life. And then in, in verse 1, he gives his thesis statement right up front. He says, oh, by the way, everything's meaningless. This is, class, this is the first class, like three sentences in. By the way, life is completely and utterly meaningless. I'm going to unpack that for 12 chapters, but it's meaningless. And that's a pretty strong start. The word for vanity, which your text is vanity of vanities, um, in, the, in the Hebrew is chabel, which means it's vapor. And if you notice, if you re- reread what I just read to you, you'll notice what he says. He's like, nothing's remembered. And everything that you think is going to be remembered right now isn't going to be remembered. Now, I know that your modern, enlightened you know, uh, inner lawyer is freaking out when I'm telling this. He's like, hold on a second. I'm a person of manifest destiny and I'm making a difference in the world. And by the way, uh, you know, you can leave the world better than you left it. And wait a minute, I disagree with this entire thing. Hold on. Solomon knows you're going to say that because that's not new. They were saying that when Solomon said this. So he starts to unpack this thing. And so this is where he begins. He begins by provoking us in a tremendous way. And then he, and then he kind of unpacks that thought for the 17 verses that we read there by going through the endless cycles of nature, the endless cycles of humanity, the endless cycles of the human condition, the wind, the sun, generations coming and going. He kind of does this for 17 verses. And then you get to verse 18 and he bookends his argument and he says, by the way, if you increase your knowledge, if you think deeply about the world, if you want to be a thoughtful, deep-souled person, you're going to get a headache. That's what he says in verse 18. It's going to increase sorrow. The increase of knowledge increases sorrow. We read this to say, wow, this guy has um, started off in a, with a real depressing tone. Oh, my goodness. Well, the tone of Ecclesiastes is depression. But the goal is liberation. In other words, God did not give us this book to depress us. He actually gave us this book to liberate us. And if you're here and you're a person of non-faith, I'd encourage you, stick around for the next 12 weeks of philosophical inquiry as we begin to unpack how Solomon provokes us to think about this thing called the meaning of life. Now, the goal is not depression. The goal is liberation. But the journey is difficult because before you get to this beautiful place of hope, You have to be in a place where you can confess your hopelessness. So Solomon starts out by provoking the idea that if all there is is life under the sun, it's utterly hopeless. So verses 2 through 12 go through the endless cycles, right? He goes through this, the rising and the setting of the sun, the streams that are flowing into the lakes, but the lakes aren't filling up. And he just creates this idea of this cycle. 
says it's going to give you a headache. I remember as a kid, I went to this fair. That, you know those fairs that drive up and set up in the parking lots of malls, and they're you know rusty and terrifying, and, and you know you look at them and you're like, I don't know if this is going to be a safe ride for my child to get on. It kind of looks like an 18-year-old just put it together. No offense to 18-year-olds, but I mean, you know, when you're making minimum wage, how committed are you really to health and safety? I'm not sure. I mean, that's the way that the fair kind of looks. Will the centrifugal force send my child into the stratosphere? Should I put them on this merry-go-round? One of those fairs. And I remember getting on it and the guy, and there was no line. And the reason there was no line is because, of course, the, the ride is terrible. And so I'm spinning around on these, you know, rusty teacups or whatever. And uh, the guy uh, just looks and sees there's no line. So he leaves us on. And he's just, we're just spinning and spinning. And so for the first extra 30 seconds, I'm like, yeah! And then the next 30 seconds, I'm like, Aah! And the next 30 seconds, I'm like, get me off! That's the first 18 verses of Solomon. He says, you want to increase your knowledge and stare into the cosmos and contemplate your smallness in the universe? You're going to get nauseous if all there is is life under the sun. Everything that you say is meaningful is absolutely not meaningful 10,000 years from now. Spoiler alert. That's where he goes. And you go, man, this is heavy stuff. In verse 3, he says, you're very busy. Wow, we're working, we're toiling, but what's it all for? What gain is there? What's going to last? We tell ourselves all these things as we get up to go to work, but a thousand years from now, ten thousand years from now, what remains? The Hebrew word here is profit. In other words, after everything's all said and done, what gets to stay? It's what he's provoking. And Solomon, like all good teachers, he's anticipating our pushback. He's just waiting for us. He's just waiting for us to respond and say, okay, I'm glad you took a breath, Solomon. Here's my response. Okay? The meaning of life is love and virtue and making the world a better place and finding pleasure in our work and relationships and human achievement and beauty and art. The meaning of life is to defy the meaninglessness of the cosmos and the purposelessness of our origins and choosing to be meaningful and purposeful anyways. Wow, well those things sound so noble. They sound so right. But like a mechanic poking the rusty, corroded underframe of a shiny, polished idea, Solomon says... No, it isn't. That can't be the meaning. Those things can't be meaningful. They can't be meaningful. In verse 4, he says, if that's what you think, you're being vain and naive. So the, and so what he does to make this argument stronger is he says, the reason you're being vain and naive is because let's, let's move away from human history and let's look at natural history. He says, a generation comes and a generation goes, but then the next phrase is, but the earth remains. So let's say that all there is is life under the sun and the world is a billion years old and it's going to be, there's going to be another billion years. You know, we're all worried that we're going to kill the planet. Relax, you're not going to kill the planet. The, can't, the planet will kill you. Okay? If, you, if, you, if you've studied evolutionary biology, then you already know where this is going. It'll just be another ice age and then we'll all die and there will be no trace that we ever existed. And then a, a, another 18 billion years from now, the world will recreate itself. So don't worry about killing the planet. The planet's not going anywhere. So Solomon says, generation comes and goes, but the earth will remain. And so he provokes it. He goes, so then, okay, if that's true, then what is really of true meaning? And you sit there, and you, then you start to get the nauseous headache of verse 18, thinking about that. And he keeps piling on. When you look at verse 3, verse 9, verse 14, he uses a phrase, under the sun. 
That's a strong theme that's going to come up over the next 12 weeks because he actually uses it 28 times. Man, if you say something 28 times, you know, people will notice. You're having a conversation and you keep using the same word and, people, and your friends are driving home. They're like, did you notice that they use that word 28 times? Wow, I don't think that word means what they think it means. You know, 28 times he says, under the sun. And the reason why he's doing this is he's causing us to, he, he wants us to gaze on physical existence, you know, naturalism. Naturalism is the idea that this, this physical universe, life under the sun, it's all there is. So if, there, if naturalism is true, and there, all there is is life under the sun, like Solomon says, is, is, is meaningless and vanity, then we can kind of assign meaning to whatever we want if it helps us sleep at night. But that doesn't mean that it's ultimately meaningful, which is his argument, right? You can make it as meaningful as you want or sound as noble as you want. But if in the end all there is is life under the sun, everything dies, the sun is going to die, like all stars die, and in the end it's meaningless. And he's relentless in this. Our life is like a sandcastle. A little kid builds a sandcastle by the beach and you watch them all afternoon, all morning building their little sandcastle. Oh, that's so cute. Let's take pictures of it. Click, click, click. But the child built it close to the water, of course, because that's where the the sand is best for building sandcastles. And then in the afternoon, the tide changes and a wave comes in and you never knew it was there in the first place. That's that's verses 1 through 18 of Ecclesiastes 1. And he says, so what are we going to do with this? How How do we do this? Now, we know that it's depressing, and we know that it's, it's, uh, if you look at the logical conclusion of naturalism, it's depressing. So Solomon anticipates our next answer, which is going to be hedonism. Naturalism ba- is basically, in summary, the idea that this world is all there is. Hedonism is the idea that, okay, because this world is all there is, and that's depressing, and we don't want to wake up and look at our little children and think about that too much, hedonism is the idea that we can find pleasure in the moment. So the, hedonist, so the naturalist says this world is all there is, but if they actually live like that's true, they're depressed. So they're like, Ugh, whoa. Okay, I, I fundamentally believe that, but I'm going to live like a hedonist, which is, listen, don't think about the big picture. Don't think deeply at all. Pleasure is in the moment. It's about life and love and sunsets and art and going for walks at the lake and sex and music and just beautiful things. Just think about beautiful things and find pleasure in the moment. And so Solomon anticipates that answer. And so in verse 8, Solomon says, All things are wearisome. The eye never has enough. The ear never has enough. You want to live for the moment? Here's the problem. There's not enough joyous moments. Look around. Are you going to live like an ostrich and say, I'm just going to live for pleasure in the moment. You have enough pleasurable moments. In verses 12 to 16, Solomon pushes it further. He says, I was the king. And there wasn't enough. I, was the, I, had everything. I had as much money as you could ever dream. I could have all the sex you could ever want. I could just conjure up party. I could just live from party to party. And he did, as you read through Ecclesiastes, because he tried it all. He goes, you want to talk about living for pleasure in the moment and having that be meaningful? That's tragedy because life doesn't give you enough pleasurable moments. So now, Solomon gives this radical confession that he's an addict chasing the wind, chasing his next high. And this is where it goes. There's not enough joyous moments. And you think about every joyous moment that all of us post to social media, there's a, there's a tidal wave of moments that aren't joy, joyous that we don't post to social media. 
There's a tidal wave of thoughts that aren't joyous and emotions that we wake up with that aren't joyous. When you're scrolling through social media and you're looking at the joys of life, you're, you're scrolling through carefully curated highlight reels. And Solomon goes, hey, there's not going to be enough, life is not going to hand you enough pleasurable moments. And globally and historically, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And he says, I became an addict, verses 8 through 16. That's where this kind of thing goes. He says, I was chasing the wind. How can he make the statement, it's chasing the wind? Because for the next 12 chapters, he unpacks how he chased the wind. So everything under the sun, he says 28 times. This, this idea of chasing the wind, he uses 10 times throughout the whole philosophical essay. This is what he kind of gets at. Russell Brand is a comedian and an author, uh, kind of a bit of a political activist, and he's, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. He doesn't profess faith in Christ, but he, um, is a, he's a spiritual man. He believes there's a higher power, there's something beyond uh, the natural world. And, and, and he wrote a book on recovery, kind of his journey, very transparent journey through the 12 Steps program. And he, and, uh, he, he, he starts out by pro- this provoking idea that sounds very much like Ecclesiastes by saying everybody's on the addiction spectrum. It's actually quite insightful. And here's what Russell Brand says as he opens up his book. He says, Here in our glistening citadels of limitless reflecting screens, we live on the outside. Today we awaken and instantly and unthinkingly reach for our phones. Its glow reaching our eyes before the light of dawn. Its bulletins dart into our minds before even a moment of acknowledgement of this unbending and ending fact. You're going to die. You and your children and everyone you love is hurtling toward the boneyard. We all know this, but because it yields so few likes on Facebook, we purr on in blinkered compliance, filling our days with empty fixes, a coffee here, an eBay purchase there, a half-hearted wank or a flirt, some glinting twitch of pleasure, like the silvery stitch on a cadaver tiding you over. There's nothing but an empty grave and a tombstone chisel poised. I read that when I was kind of working through his book after Susan read it, and I said, boy, that sounds like Ecclesiastes 1 quite a bit. Hurtling toward the boneyard, nobody wants to think about that. There's no joy in that reality. And what Solomon says is this. If you have to find joy in distraction from reality, you're going to get a headache. You're going to find that it's all meaningless. If all there is is life under the sun... That's a reality you need to constantly distract yourself from. And so you will live a chronically distracted life so that you don't feel the pain of the reality, which is, of course, impending death. This is where where he takes his argument, where he builds this argument. So that's why he says in verse 17, I applied myself to wisdom, but not just wisdom. He says, wisdom, madness, and folly. I tried everything. I played with ethics. I partied like it was 99 B.C. Okay, I, I, <laughs> it almost was, actually. That's funny. Oh, I should have thought of that earlier. I could have crafted that better. Anyways, the, he says, I, I applied myself to everything. Why not play with ethics? Because if all there is is life under the sun and there is no God, then what gives you the right to climb up into the throne and declare what is good, right, moral, and true? You can say anything is fake news if there's no God. Everything's fake news, fake truth, fake, fake ethics. That's what Solomon says. Anybody can say, of course we can say that. Why not? Because if the universe sprung into being from meaninglessness, 
And on what basis are we declaring meaning? This is, this is where he goes with this thing. He says, I tried being philosophical, driven by a sense of cause, and then I tried being a rebel without a cause, and I tried it all. Okay, so that's where the recording ended on Sunday morning. Can you believe it? Uh, imagine if I just posted it right there. No gospel. <laughs> just, just the crushing reality of our fragile mortality. Oh my goodness, that would have been so depressing. But actually, it's at this point where um, we have to sit in the gravity of what Solomon is actually giving us, which is the shortness that is human life. Um, but there is tremendously good news, which of course is why we gather on Sunday mornings. So we do want to be thoughtful about all of this, but uh, let's get ourselves to the gospel here. Uh, God uses this word in Ecclesiastes to lead us into the confession of our hopelessness. Yes, so that we can be candidates of hope. This is because what he has done in Jesus Christ has changed absolutely everything. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is a, has a philosophical framework. And so what God has done is in his grace, he has given us a very hopeful book uh, in the gospel of John that begins with the same philosophical framework, right? It's giving us an answer for the quest for meaning. Solomon in Ecclesiastes is provoking us to look further. John in his gospel says, here's where you need to avert your gaze. So what John does is, um, it, uh, you know, like all the gospel writers wrote about Jesus and who he was, John uses a very specific word to talk about Jesus, and that word is the logos. The logos in the Greek is logic, reason, um, meaning, and word, the word for that. Uh, so what what John does is he recognizes that everybody, all the whole entire Greco-Roman world, and since all the philosophers of the time of Solomon and, and even long before Solomon and other uh, ancient civilizations were looking for this logos. They were looking for the reason and the meaning. And so what we need to recognize is that it is the sin of humanity that has caused the world to be out of touch with the logos. Humanity is out of touch with the reason, the meaning. This is why we're in these meaningless cycles of death. Think about it. God created us to enjoy him and cultivate civilization to his glory in a world that is without injustice and violence and oppression or sickness, disease and death. And the, and the Apostle John knows that. <clears throat> and so what he says is that in the beginning, there was a logos, there was a logic, there was a reason, there was something that spun the universe into motion. And we need to get in touch and in line with what that was. Because in the beginning, there was no life and death, only life. Sin brought the meaningless cycle that Solomon is crying about. Sin brought the meaningless cycle that all philosophers cry about. Sin is what brought the meaningless cycle, which is why when you and I sit in funerals, there's something in the depths of our guts that say, this isn't right, there's something wrong with this. And it's true because God has put in the soul of all humanity a knowledge of him, even if we suppress that knowledge. And so when we're looking at death, there's something in the core of our being of who we are that says this isn't right because sin brought the meaningless cycle. So God in his great grace in Jesus Christ came and stopped the meaningless cycle to restore us to God's logos, restore us to his logic, his reason for life, his meaning in the universe. And so this is how the apostle John starts his gospel. We have been restored to eternal life by sheer grace. In 33 AD on the Roman cross, history records that Christ died. He paid for our sin. Three days later, history records that there was an empty tomb. 
The scriptures record it. The Babylonian Talmud records it. Roman antiquity records it. On that third day, that empty tomb means that Christ defeated death. And in defeating death, he put an end to the meaningless cycle. So that by placing our faith in him by grace alone, we're not limited to the smallness of this life that's under the sun. In fact, we've been swept up into an eternal reality by the gracious God who spoke and created the sun. And so now because of God's grace... Everything we do is not meaningless. It's not eventually being swallowed up in an ocean of time until the sun burns out and there's no trace that, you know, we ever were here. No, now everything we do is meaningful because we live to the glory of our God who saved us in grace, which was his logos in the beginning. We are now um, been realigned to an eternal reality. I'm going to give you an example, a few examples. Let's talk about caring for the earth, ecological responsibility, okay? Now that has eternal meaning. Without the gospel, it's meaningless to recycle your cans and your plastics. You can say, well, we're keeping the planet cleaner for the next generation. Why? There is an inevitable extinction coming to them and to all humanity. It is meaningless. We might prolong uh, you know, the inevitable end of the earth by a few seconds, cosmically speaking, but it's meaningless. But now, when we place our faith in eternal God through Jesus Christ, we care for the earth. There's ecological responsibility because we recognize God's logos from the beginning was that we would enjoy the earth forever. And the end of the Bible, spoiler alert, is that he will restore it, which means a billion years from now, we'll be enjoying it. We'll be drinking wine, eating bread, cultivating civilization with our God at the center. That was the logos from the beginning. Think about caring for the poor, standing for mercy and justice. Now it has eternal meaning. Not simply because it helps the next generation or it helps the little guy until their inevitable extinction. Not because it helps those who have come into the tragedy of, of human trafficking or the other atrocities that happen in, in the earth that we want to stand up against. And we're not simply just biding them time a few more years before the inevitable extinction, before our inevitable extinction. No, now suddenly caring for the poor, standing for mercy and justice, it has eternal meaning because we recognize that Mercy and justice is the loving character of our God. And a billion years from now, we're going to be eating bread and drinking wine and celebrating the mercy and the justice of our God, that in his mercy, he took our sin. In his justice, he took our sin on himself. We'll be celebrating mercy and justice and nature of our God and have eternal significance because we'll be celebrating those things for all of eternity. Or take work and studying on campus. So, you know, if you're a student trying to figure out what to do with your life after you graduate, listen, eternal meaning, not because you got to get a job and pay your bills, not because you, you got to just, you know, get by and put food in the fridge until your inevitable extinction. No, suddenly now work and, and uh, developing your skills and the personality uh, that God has given you, everything that makes you wonderfully you, as the psalmist wrote, that you've been fearfully and wonderfully made by an eternal God, it has eternal significance. Because a billion years from now, we'll be using all of the glorious gifts and talents and personalities, the things that make you you. You'll be using those things in, uh, in the restoration to cultivate civilization with God at the center. That was his logos from the beginning. Everything that God did in the beginning, he's restoring. He's not conceding anything. Genesis gives us a glimpse of all, all of eternity. We're not running around wearing uh, fig leaf underwear for forever. We, you look at the human achievement 
in the world that we live in, it's it, a lot of it is beautiful and a lot of it is staggering and incredible. It's just a pale residue of what will be when God comes and raises us from the grave just as he raised Christ from the grave and we enjoy all of eternity in a world that is without oppression, greed, uh, sin, and violence, without disease and death. It's going to be glorious. Because there is more than life under the sun, because there is an eternal God who spoke and created the sun, and because by grace and faith you're united to him, everything you do has meaning and it's beautiful. Our meaning is not found in the trivial temporal things of this life our meaning is found as we rest and worship the god the one who gave us life he is our hope in life and death we praise him john chapter one in the beginning was the logos in the beginning was the reason the meaning and the word and that word was with god and the word was god and he was in the beginning with god and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made and in him was life and life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the one uh, the son of the father full of grace and truth for from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Amen.